this session we have is probably our most packed. This is the proverbial fire hydrant. We are going to have people walking in late, but um, thanks to y'all who got here on time. I, uh, I want to honor your time and go ahead and dive in. Um, if you open your notebooks, hopefully you have this little week two paper. It talks about what we believe. Um, and as you're grabbing that piece of paper, um, I am going to pray for our time. God, I am really thankful for this class and uh, these new friends that I'm making. And I pray, as I have and will every week, that this time is profitable, that it is helpful. Um, I thank you for people who take seriously the, uh, the privilege of being a member of a local church. And I pray that this, this class in its entirety would uh, be very helpful in aiding them uh, to find the church that they will call their church family, their church home. And so I pray that uh, probably in the most complex uh, of classes um, that you would bring simplicity uh, and help us to clearly understand what we believe here at OGC and how we draw certain lines. And so I pray for your grace and, uh, and your wisdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So there are a number of different ways that we could approach what we believe at Orlando Grace Church. And it's funny, I've no, noticed as I've done different variations of new member classes, for some people, this is the week they've been waiting for. Like the, what we believe, going through the doctrine. For other people, it's just like, just rip the Band-Aid off as fast as you can. I, I'm not in, as interested in, in some of the minutiae. And I don't know where you come from, but this is something that we take very seriously. And we really want you to know what we believe from top to bottom. Um, I could legitimately, I think, have a 20-week series on what we believe, okay? Uh, because we're, I'm obviously not doing that, that changes the way that I approach what we believe. Um, I am going to try to explain what these things mean in the simplest possible terms, but I am going to be assuming some level of knowledge of certain things. So if we get to a place where you have a question, by all means, raise your hand, ask the question. You know, I want this to be uh, an easy back and forth environment, but um, sometimes there's questions where I, I can see, all right, this is better if we do this over a coffee sometime. And so I might just say, hey, why don't we grab a coffee on me and we'll dive into one of these issues more. Um, so feel free to, um, even if you don't ask a question and you feel like there, there is, there's a coffee under 0.5 or something, uh, please let me know. I would love to sit down with you, get to know you better and, and make sure all this is really clear. Um, so this, uh, this church abides to what is known as the 1689 Confession of Faith. Uh, who, it's okay if you've never heard of that. I'm curious, who has heard, familiar with the 1689 Confession of Faith? All right, so I say less than half of you have heard of it, okay? So probably in the world of confessions, I feel like the, uh, the most famous is probably the Westminster Confession. If you're Presbyterian, you abide by the Westminster Confession. Now, neither the Presbyterians nor us would say this is our Bible. It's not that we even have to agree with every single jot and tittle of what's in the confession. As you'll see, not all of us agree with every jot and tittle that's in our confession, uh, not most Presbyterian pastors take exceptions with the Westminster Confession. What we're saying with the confession is that this best reflects what we believe. In the shortest possible way, the 1689 Confession is the best 
reflection of what we believe at OGC. So um, if you want, I think it would be a really good exercise. You can download a free version of the 1689 Confession on your phone or tablet or print it out, and you can see, you go through and see what we believe. Um, at the end of this, I'll, I'll tell you some of my exceptions um, with it. But, uh, but it is the best document that, that we have to say this is what we believe. And so what I'm going to do in this time here is to give you um, the best explanation I can in less than an hour on what the 1689 can, teaches, what we say the Bible, what we see the Bible to be saying. And so I'm dividing it up into four categories. You can see what makes us historically Christian, uh, what makes us evangelical, what makes us Baptist, and then what makes us OGC, okay? And so we're going to walk through those things. You know, I kind of, I've kind of ordered them in what I would say order of importance. You know, the first section, you know, if, if you don't agree with us on that, and even to some extent the second session section, you're just probably not going to be happy here. It's, it is not, we're not trying to be harsh, but these, these are the, the really important things about what we believe that are going to come up on a regular, if not weekly basis. Um, and then the, the last two sections are things that, um, although are true of this church and not changing, um, th there are people who, who disagree with us on these things, and they are very happy, thriving, contributing members of Orlando Grace Church. So we'll walk through them in this way. Um, Y'all ready? Feel free to raise your hand at any point and ask questions. What makes us historically Christian? We believe in a triune God. And so we're going to, right here, we hit the first of three paradoxes in the Christian faith. So a paradox is where you have two truths that seem to contradict each other, but they're both true. And so one God, three persons. I can't explain that, but it's what the Bible clearly teaches. So we hold on to this mystery. Um, we believe in a triune God. We believe in a, a literal creation of man. There was a literal Adam and Eve. Um, we don't take a hard stance on um, exactly when and how everything, you know, how we interpret Genesis 1 and 2. We have strong opinions, but, but we would say that the historical Adam and Eve, uh, that they were created by God in his image, is, is absolutely a core part of what we um, of what we believe, what we see the Bible to be saying. Uh, and then we also, connected to that, believe there was a real fall of man. This, this Adam and Eve, there was a point in which they, uh, they rebelled against God by eating the fruit of the tree they were forbidden to eat. And at that moment, sin entered the world. And all of our problems are connected to that moment, at the fall of man. And, and we, would, you know, we wouldn't want to look at it as this, it being the fall in our sin, as a sickness maybe that we you know just inherit it's something more than that we are born into this rebellion we are actively a part of the rebellion against god because of this first moment where man fell genesis 3 and so in that um here okay it's interesting um well let me hold on that so of the way to salvation we're historically christian so we would say that problem is sin and the cure to sin is jesus so jesus came and he lived the life that we never could he uh, we talked about the, the law last week he fulfilled the law in that he not just did it all that's part of fulfilling the law but he he fulfilled the laws our debt to the law um, because we could never do what was expected of, a, of us as sinful people and you know in light of a holy and perfect God Jesus did that in our place and when he went to the cross he switched places with us if we believe, 
So he took on the curse that we merit, and we take on all the blessings that he merited with his perfect life. And so that is the only way to salvation. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Of the freeness of salvation. Um, so, um, you know, it, this is historically Christian. Everybody in the Christian faith would say the only thing that stands in between a person and their salvation is their own sin. Okay? There's, we, everybody was going to want to nuance that slightly differently, all the different streams. But all of Christianity has always agreed our sin is what separates us from God. Uh, we have this uh, next part on free will, free agency, and regeneration. So we would say, um, okay, and, and in this we come to the second paradox. Because the first paradox was the triune God. Second paradox, we, we worship a sovereign God, sovereign over every single aspect of our lives, including our decision to choose to follow him. All right? But we're not robots. We have real decisions to make. Our decisions have real repercussions. Our prayers matter. Our personal holiness matters. Um, and so what we would say is, and this, again, historically Christian, um, before we come to Christ we have what's called free agency. We have this freedom to make decisions. We make decisions as we would make decisions, but it's all affected by sin, all of it. So it's not free will, it's free agency. But the moment that the Holy Spirit intervenes into our life and opens our eyes and our hearts, that, that moment is called regeneration. We, we, we see things the way that we should see things. And without that moment, nobody has the ability to respond to Jesus. Now, again, people don't realize that's historically Christian. Nobody has historically disagreed with that. Uh, the Holy Spirit has to do something to overcome our inability to see Jesus because of our sin. Now, what the Holy Spirit does, that's highly debated in the Christian world. But that he has to do something is not debated. And when he does that something that we call regeneration, we are for the first time given a free will. <laughs> and then we will 100% of the time when that happens, choose Jesus. <laughs> so free will, free agency, regeneration. I'm covering multiple sections of the 1689 <coughs> confession at this point. Um, let me say, stop right there. Any, any question on the first six? The harmony of the law and the gospel. Uh, I could really punt and just say, just listen to last week's sermon. <laughs> like, so, how, how does the law, how do the law and the gospel go together? Um, yeah, I said last week there was, um, in the second century, there was a, I didn't use this word on the stage, but there was a heretic named Marcion. And he was a heretic because he said, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, two different religions, two different gods, uh, because in the Old Testament we see a God of wrath, and in the New Testament, we see a God of grace and love. And he went so far as to, in his, he eliminated the Old Testament and went through and marked out every reference in the New Testament that references the Old Testament, <laughs> uh, including our passage last week. Um, but we would say that's a very naive view of looking at the Bible, because if you look at the Old Testament, you actually see a ton of grace and patience on the part of God. Everybody would have been smited in Genesis 3. Uh, and in the New Testament, you see a ton of wrath but we as Christians tend to not be drawn to the wrath of the New Testament because it went to Jesus instead of us. There, there's more wrath in the New Testament, I would say, than the Old Testament, but it went to Jesus and not us. And then you see at the very end the wrath that God does have for those who don't believe in Jesus. Um, 
but there is great harmony between the law and the gospel. Um, the Lord's Supper, we, um, and this is the historically Christian part. Obviously, there's some great disagreement in what is actually happening as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but we agree we are commanded on a regular basis, which in our church means on a monthly basis, to to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The broken, uh, we celebrate the broken body of Jesus through the bread and the the shed blood of Jesus through the juice, and we do that the first Sunday of the month, which is today. So we get to celebrate the we get to celebrate communion. I'm going to stop there because that's all that I can say that is historically Christian. I am going to come back to Lord's Supper in a little bit. Uh, civil government, we believe that the civil government is a blessing. We are glad we don't live in anarchy. It doesn't matter if we voted for the president who's in office or not. Um, if you've been in this church for more than four years, probably you've had a president that you didn't vote for. <laughs> but we agree that even when we don't have, you know, whether you liked Obama or not or Trump or not, we are grateful that we have a government that looks over us and we, we are commanded to pray for this government. And so we do uh, on a regular basis try and do that. Um, the Lord's Day, uh, we believe that there's a day that's set apart um, primarily for rest and worship. And there may be some disagreement on whether worship is the emphasis or rest is the emphasis, but, but we would all agree both of those are emphases. And so um, we, we set apart Sunday as that day where we come together and we worship and we have uh, maybe some different thoughts on exactly how you interpret that into the rest of your day. But we would say, you know, we're, we're, we're devoted if we're in town and we're healthy, we're going to be in church and we're going to worship because it's not just something that, that God wants us to do to prove our obedience. Uh, worship is a time where God's people come together, and you're going to hear this language from me on a regular basis, and I do this intentionally because I want it to catch. But when we come together, we're worshiping because we are in worship. We are refocusing our minds, reorienting our hearts, and setting ourselves up to be fueled out Monday through Saturday on the mission that we're called to be on. And so... Um, the Lord today is a very important piece to the rhythm of our schedule. Civil government. Wait, I said civil government. I missed skip Lord Day. The world to come. At Orlando Grace, we believe there will be an end to this world that will happen on October. I'm just <laughs> we don't know. We don't. There's lots of. Again, we're historically Christian in this section. Um, you know, they, I actually don't know all the elders' eschatological um, beliefs. I'm guessing there would be some differences among us. Um, and it's okay. We're, we're not going to all agree on exactly how this is going to come about. We all have opinions based on how we interpret Revelation. Um, but we agree there will be an end to this world. And there will be a new world that will be ushered in, what, what the Bible calls a new heaven and a new earth, where there will be no more pick. No more sickness, no more pain, no more tears, and we will live in this world, but like in a renewed way. I don't know what it's going to look like. It's going to be much better than anything we see here. I kind of imagine that we'll be able to have wings and explore the universe, and you know, there's more than we can do in 10 eternities. But I don't know what it looks like. But more than all that, we get to live with Jesus. We get to be with God without the separation of our sin. Uh, and it will be an incredible thing. And then lastly, uh, we have added a statement on marriage. Uh, the, the people who wrote the Westminster Confession and the 1689 Convention, I don't think, well, actually the 1689 does talk about marriage. Um, so let me give that to them. Um, but we've clarified some of what it means in our modern society. But we have a very 
we have a historically Christian view of marriage. I don't know that I need to drill down on that at all. But I will, as a side note, say that we want to get better and better in this evolving society of not just saying this is the way God mandates it, although we 100% believe he does. We want to get better at communicating the heart behind the design to a society that increasingly rejects it altogether. That's a skill that, that we want to develop and cultivate to be able to communicate all that marriage is meant to communicate, um, which is a lot about God's character and the gospel and his grace and love that will never, never leave us. All right, so that's what makes us historically Christian. Any, any questions on that? Okay. What makes us evangelical? Now, I, we used to say what makes us Protestant. We had to change that word to evangelical because in the 20th century, a lot of Protestantism went liberal. And so this is what's interesting. The, these items in the confession originally were meant to separate us from our Roman Catholic friends. Um, and they still do that, but as effectively and maybe even more so, they now um, draw lines between us and our liberal friends. And I don't mean liberal politically. I'm talking about liberal Christianity. Uh, you know, there are pastors and many pastors in this town who would say, the Bible's not inerrant, that Jesus didn't really resurrect, he wasn't really born of a virgin. You know, I had one Presbyterian pastor say, well, being reformed, I believe in many ways to God. I believe in a bigger you know, view of God, so I believe you can get to him through many paths. And I was like, that's interesting. No reformer has ever held your position, but we'll <laughs> overlook that for the moment. Um, so so th- there's a whole stream of Christianity that doesn't believe in the miracles. And so this, this section not only clarifies who we are um, in terms of the Roman Catholic world, but also the liberal Christian world. Um, so the first thing is the scriptures. Obviously, we believe that scriptures are breathed out by God. They are inerrant and infallible um, and inerrant in their original form. Um, and uh, you know, what's interesting is a lot of, a, a lot of modern people would throw out the miracles, would, would throw out the word inerrant but not infallible. <laughs> and infallible is the stronger word. It means everything that it says will come to pass. And I just think, gosh, if you're going to throw out one, throw that out. <laughs> like don't, don't throw the, the lesser and keep the, the heavier. But we would hold to both, inerrant and infallible. Um, and the scripture is our ultimate um, authority. There, there would be other, you know, and again, in the Roman Catholic world, they have their magisterium, church tradition, and, and we have only the scriptures that we lean on for, for our authority. Justification. Um, so, it, yes, please. Going back to the church is our only authority, just to circle back, we use the, the scriptures is our only authority. We use the 1689 to help us understand yeah. what the scriptures say. So that's I'm true. Yeah, kind of that's great. That. And it is a very helpful. And, the, and let me also say that's why we, so you have your confession, which is written by brilliant men, and they, you know, what would take me three pages to flesh out, they can do in a paragraph. <laughs> but because they do that, it's sometimes very dense and hard to understand. Um, and so because of that, they created a catechism that helps make these dense things very helpful to be understood. And so we, we, they're made to be able to teach what the confession says. So that's why on Sundays we read the catechism. <laughs> and, um, and, every, and I try to coordinate the catechism with, what, with the sermon text but, uh, but we don't just do it as something to do. We do it because we want to better understand what the scriptures say. 
and the catechism is one of the best tools that we know to do that. Sometimes we'll insert a creed here and there because they do the same thing, but uh, thank you. That's a really helpful clarification. Justification. Um, you, know, if you may have heard the old saying, what, is what does it mean to be justified? Just as if I'd never sinned. So we believe the moment that we come to faith, in God's eyes, it is just as if I've never sinned. <clears throat> that isn't how the other two parties that I've referenced look at the scriptures. This makes us uniquely, in, uniquely evangelical. We believe that the moment we believe, we are given the imputed righteousness of Christ um, and that God looks at us as if we were Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean... Okay, we still have a lot to flesh out and work out as we are conformed into that image that we're declared to be. But it is the moment we believe uh, we are saved and guaranteed eternity with him. Repentance and faith, uh, we would, you know, what is required to be justified is, would be the next logical question. Well, repentance and faith. Repentance is turning from our sin. Faith is turning towards Jesus and uh, some of some, uh, there's another confession that calls these two separate but inseparable acts of salvation. Separate, they're separate things, but they have to go together for salvation to happen. So separate but inseparable, repentance and faith, sanctification. So I said we're we're moment we believe we're righteous in God's eyes, but we st we still look um, a mess down here. And so the second we can say the second stage to the Christian life is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we, we place a high value on sanctification because we, the more we're conformed in this image, the more truly content and joyful we will be. Um, and God has given us lots of means of grace along the way to help fuel our sanctification, things like prayer and worship and uh, confession, not in the you know, high church, you know, Catholic sense, but... Um, there, there's something powerful when I confess my sin to Mike and, and he responds in grace and reminds me of the gospel. That's a, uh, communion would be another means. Um, obviously, having our scriptures and reading them and spending time in them. But God has given us lots of these types of means of grace to fuel our sanctification, and that's something that we should pursue. Um, of the perseverance of the saints, we would say everyone who is truly saved will endure to the end. Um, you know, and I've there's always some, you know, somebody has a question about, well, I, I knew so-and-so who was, seemed to have been a Christian and, and fell away. Um, I, have, I had a Sunday school teacher and one of my closest friends in my community group uh, when I lived in Mississippi who left the faith and left his family completely. And so, so how does that, um, how, do we, how do we interpret what's going on? And First John, I, I would lean on heavily in, in other places, to say that, that, that they weren't a true believer. I mean, it, it looked good. I mean, that they were. It looked like they were, but we know who is a true believer by who makes it to the end. It's probably a better way to interpret it because if we, you know, in, in the deep south especially, but here too, you have this once saved, always saved, which I get what's trying to be communicated. But what can be misunderstood in just saying once saved, always saved, is well, I I saw this person get baptized or walk the aisle. And I believe they will always be saved because of that thing they did. Well, the emphasis on their salvation then is something they did, not something God's continuing to do. So, so the, the perseverance of the saints means that those who are truly believers will persevere to the end. So I'd say I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about Chuck and Mike and Dan and Rick. <laughs> uh, 
but can I say 100% that they're believers? I said, well, let's see how this plays out. Let's see if they finish the good fight. They finish the race. Um, and then lastly, the righteous and the wicked. This was originally, I think, meant to really address the purgatory issue. Mm-hmm. But at the end of time, there will be um, a split of the righteous and the wicked. And it doesn't have to do with the morality and ethics of our life. Um, G- Revelation says it at the end, uh, Jesus will open the book of life. And what this is going to reflect is a decision we've made in this life. How do we want to be judged at the end of time? Do we want to be judged on the merits of our life? Or do we want to be judged on the merits of Jesus' life? And, and that's what the books reflect. So the book opens, and everybody who has said, I want to be judged on the merits of Jesus' life, their name is in that book, and that is how they are judged. And so that goes well for them. They are credited, counted righteous because they're judged on Jesus' righteous life. And then Revelation says everyone else opened up their books because then they're judged by the works of their life, and that does not go well, and that is what the wicked are. Um, and it, and it's, again, it's not our own morality. It's how we want to be judged, but that day is coming. It is serious, and, and we want people to know about that day. All right, so that largely finishes what makes us evangelical. Any questions on that part? This is what happens when we get a bigger class. People don't want to ask questions that they're really thinking about. I'll just say I feel a cup of coffee coming. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to invite you over. Okay, good, good. I would love it. I would love it. Um, all right. What makes us Baptist? And, you know, Baptist is one of those words you... you but let me, just to be fair, if you have like a Southern Baptist background, I do, okay, somewhat... All right, not many of you. So to most of you, you hear the word Baptist, and I don't even know what pops in your head. (laughs) Um, The word Baptist doesn't mean necessarily First Baptist Church of whatever city, or the Southern Baptist Convention even. It means that we do baptism in a certain way, um, and and that we have a certain kind of polity. Polity means government. That's what Baptist means. And so um, we do have, we're we're what's called an elder-led, congregationally governed church. A hallmark of a of a of a Baptist church is that at the end of the day, the, you know we don't have this chain of command that goes to um, the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope or even a general assembly. Um, our chain of command stops here, and it stops with the members of this church. And so that the members do they they vote on things like elders. Um, if we were to change our bylaws or our doctrine. I'm pr- pretty sure we would have to have a congregational vote. What else would we vote vote on? Deacons. Deacons, okay. Choosing a pastor. Ah, choosing a pastor. That's that's fresh on my mind. Um, <laughs> so at the end of the day, now we're you know we're not going to vote on the color of these chairs here, but but on those really big things. And you elect elders to and deacons to to do a lot of that decision making. Um, and so we do have. Um, Elders and deacons, uh, the elders are primarily concerned with the spiritual shepherding and direction of this church. And that entails everything from, you know, knowing people one-on-one to how, how we do our public services. They're, they're, um, there's a lot that goes under this umbrella of shepherding the flock. The deacons largely um, are here to help take a lot of these service-oriented um, needs off the pl- pl- 
plates of the elders, Acts 6 here, um, so that we can be freed up more and more for the administration of the word, praying for the flock, helping deal with, helping people walk through some difficult circumstances. Um, so the elders come alongside, the, I mean, the deacons come alongside the elders to help uh, help us with things like our facility, um, some, you know, we're... Benevolence. Benevolence is a great one. We're, we're <clears throat> looking to buy land. So one of our deacons is, is a lawyer and, and specializes in real estate laws, and it's very helpful. Um, so we, we're, we're Baptist in our understanding of our congregational church, our elders and our deacons, how that plays out, and then baptism believers, uh, which I'm going to say more on in a moment. Um, but we teach and practice baptism of believers by immersion. So that, and, and I'm going to qualify baptism in just a second and what makes us uniquely OGC, but let me pause here for a second. Any, any question on what makes us Baptist? Well, you could even say Baptistic. I don't know. You're going to share with them where our pool is, right? So they all know. That's right. That's right. We're going to, we can walk you all out there right now. Somebody <laughs> <laughs> the drums. Yeah, there, it's, it, there, there is a baptistry up there. Um, and uh, we would, I mean, a prayer of all the elders is that, that baptisms would be a regular part of the life of this church. I would love for, you know, if, if two months went by and there was no baptism, do people be thinking like, this, this, is, this feels off? <laughs> um, that would be exciting to be able to continually celebrate people coming to know Jesus uh, in that way. Any questions? I will say on this, right now, Orlando Grace Church is um, a totally autonomous, well, we're all autonomous, let me just find a better way, an unaffiliated church. We're not a part of a denomination or a network. Um, one of the desires of the elders preceding my arrival is that we would affiliate in some way. And so we're walking through a lot of those, what that looks like, what our values are, what the options are. And so we're in the very early stages of that. Now, affiliation would not change anything about us. It would just, we would want to affiliate to maximize our, um, who we are, to work better with other churches that are generally like-minded, but affiliation would never change anything about who we are. Mm -hmm. Did you have a... You were going to talk about what makes us uniquely OGC? Yes. On the baptism front, I think? Yes. That's the last well, section. Let me, let me mention something yes. about uh, affiliation, Jim. Yeah. You're new and you, you, you articulated it correctly. It's actually been on our list for about 10 years of some type of affiliation. The, the difficult part is, is is that we're unique being Reformed Baptist, and so there's not a lot of folk places that you could have gone years ago. Yeah. Now there's, there's, there's more of us, or at least like-minded us, that there's more options. Yeah. But, but we've been trying to do that. That was actually part of our building the wall in Nehemiah, the, the, the one item that we did not complete. Well said. All right, what makes us OGC? Um, reformed theology. And so uh, what is Reformed theology? Let me say, this is the way that your elders will interpret the scriptures. This is the, the hermeneutic that we, that we use. Uh, being Reformed is not a membership requirement, but it's something that we want to make you really aware of. You're going you're gonna to see Reformed theology taught. Um, so I have uh, I went to RTS Reformed Theological Seminary as did you and you and anybody else, um, and I had a, a professor there. So 
my aunt is not a believer, and she was asking my mom, her sister, you know, what is Reformed Theological Seminary? What does that mean? And so I asked one of my professors, how do I explain Reformed theology to someone who isn't even a believer? And I loved his answer. He said, tell your aunt that you believe in a God that cares about and is involved in every aspect of your life. I know that was a really good way of describing Reformed theology. Now, of course, in that, you're going to have things like the five solas, um, Scripture alone, grace alone, Christ alone, help me out. To the glory of God. To the glory of God alone. We've got four. No, that's five. So, the five solas. (laughs) Spruce up on the five solas. Um, The... uh, you're going to have we're going to we're going to embrace this paradox of um of holding the mystery i heard an ruf guy once say reformed theology it isn't trying to explain the mystery between god's sovereignty and human responsibility it's it's holding that mystery intention not explaining it but holding it and so really where you know inside reformed circles you're going to see you're going to see the if the core is believing in a in a big god okay that that's what reformed theology is believing in a big god you're going to see things that orbit Reformed theology that, that often are associated with Reformed theology. Things like elders, things like expository preaching. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. The way that we preach the Bible, we, we just want to expose people to the Bible. That's what expository. So we want to make the main teaching of the text, the main, te- part, the main point of the text, the main part of the sermon. Um, and then you're going to have, you know, you, you come up, you do hear the, the five points of Calvinism, um, which was which I never want to say Reformed theology is the five points of Calvinism because at its core, Calvin, the five points was just a, like a defensive rebuttal to someone else's five points. So it was never designed to be this robust explanation of Reformed theology. It was just defending it on five fronts. But um, at its core, we believe in a big God. We believe in a God who is a sovereign God, great, a sovereign God. Um, and we offer classes and equipping our classes that will take us through these topics hopefully if you if you sit in this church for a year and you're hearing the sermons and in a community group and talking about them every aspect of reformed theology is going is going to be touched on um but it is the hermeneutic and, and we you know in our last uh discover ogc there was a, a lady who said i'm this is not. Um, now, I don't buy into all pieces of reformed theology, and I said, "Are, are you okay that we do?" <laughs> I mean, we're, this is. I'm here telling you what we believe, and that won't change. Um, and she was, and she wanted to move forward in, in membership. Um, so this is this is just something we want to make you aware of. It's not a requirement to join this church, but something we just want. We don't want to hide it from anybody. Any, Jim, Jim, yes. You may always that. Reformed folks are always reforming. You're always trying mm-hmm. to get back to that, what God is asking us, you know, what is put forth to us. And so we're always trying to, we're always trying to look for that perfect yeah. light in the middle. And so we're always trying. So having someone come in and say, I don't believe in all five points or I don't understand all this, that's okay because guess what? We're all working on yeah. it. Once we figure out that we know everything about God, then... Well, that's a really good point, and it gets me to the historical part of it, too, that is really helpful. The the Reformation was what we we would say the church in the Dark Ages, the Medieval Ages, it it departed from Scripture in its Roman form. And so the Reformation is coming back to the original intent of the Scriptures. 
And so in its largest context, that's what Reformed is. We're, we're reforming to get back to the heart of what Scripture is teaching. Um, and what is that thing? We would say largely the 1689 Confession of Faith. Um, that's helpful. Thanks. All right, so uh, Reformed Theology makes us uniquely OGC. We, we enjoy a really great, tight partnership with Reformed Theological Seminary. We're very thankful for that ministry. We actually started, as you heard from Rick last week, in Reformed Theology. We, we, were, we started meeting in their old chapel. Was it a chapel or was it a chapel? Back when they were over here in Maitland. And then lastly, what makes us uniquely OGC? Um, on the baptism front, although we practice and only teach and practice believers' baptism, um, it's not a membership requirement. Okay. Now we would say baptism is a membership requirement that everybody agrees on that. But if your conscience tells you that infant baptism, and if you were baptized as an infant and your conscience tells you that is a baptism, we understand the dots that you're connecting. Again, you have to be okay. We don't, we're not going to practice that. Um, Chuck's probably the best example we have of somebody who does see those dots, but he's okay. That's just, that's not what this church, uh, practices. And, um, and, Obviously, he's not like a second-rate member here. <laughs> um, he's the moderator of the elders. But we, uh, at the core of who OGC is, we practice and we, and we teach believers' baptism by immersion. But um, if your conscience tells you that infant baptism is the way and that you have been baptized, then, then you are welcome into membership in this church. I would, talk about distinction for Roman Catholic baptism. Yeah, okay. So that's a, so when I say infant baptism, there are two different types of infant <laughs> baptism. There is the, the type that says that that saved me. You know, at that moment, the parents, through the faith of my parents, there was like a, a shot of the Holy Spirit put in me that set me on a path to be saved if I continue to carry out all those things. That's not what we're talking about with infant baptism. If that's your view, I'd love to have a coffee. Um, <laughs> if, uh, but what we are talking about is there is a view that says, well, we, we see a high continuity between the Old and New Testament, and we would want to apply baptism the same way as, largely the same way as circumcision to a baby uh, when they are introduced as a part of the covenant family. Again, that's not my view, but it's, it's, it's not a weird view. I mean, it's a very well-established view. Um, and if that's your view, you you would be welcome into membership, as long as it's actually happened to you. <laughs> you have to be baptized. In other words, we're good with with people whose consciences are constrained yes. on infant baptism from a gospel preaching church. Yes, well said. Or traditional, <laughs> which is yeah. probably going to be Presbyterian, but or Episcopal, or Anglican. Could be Methodist. Yeah. We don't see that as much, but it could, it could be. I'd be good with a good Wesleyan coming in here. Charles Wesley wanted to join our church. Um, baby dedications, that would be a good, I want to say analogy, but we do baby, do baby dedications. And, and I would say from my perspective, coming from a Presbyterian background, our baby dedications are very close yeah. to what a um, infant baptism, we just, we just don't have the, the sprinkling of the water because... You, it's basically the parents dedicating in our in our baby dedications. The parents are, are bringing their child, just like they did in the eighth day, to the to the temple. Yeah. And um, and there's also an obligation as a covenant agreement as well too, which is traditional from a Presbyterian standpoint, where there's obligations for the parents as well as for the congregation of help raising that child. So it's yeah, we do a great job on our baby dedications. 
Well said. I've been talking about coming from a fourth generation BCA copy. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was actually here visiting when a baby was dedicated, and he looked at me and was like, Okay, I'm alright with this. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I think it was was it J.I. Packer who calls baby dedications in churches like ours dry baptisms. There is a great blessing to being born into a Christian family, and and we as a church have have an obligation to come alongside families, growing families like yours. And, uh, and pray for you and resource you and give you whatever you can to, to raise that child up in the admission. I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah, okay. we're, do, we're good on time. Okay. Uh, when we first got you know, uh, here, we were the second uh, Pale Baptist family that joined the church. And um, uh, I had so Which means folks, infant baptism. Yeah. And so I had so many. Well, our church started from a self-church plant. This is probably told you from First Baptist. So they all came in mostly from First Baptist folks. They all wanted to know why I believed what I, you know, because they'd been told it was, you know, almost like heresy coming in. <laughs> and so it was kind of neat because I had this little uh, Francis Schaefer little book on baptism, and so I just handed out and kind of shared it. got dog-eared after a while. And, and they'd come back and bring it back. So now I understand. Okay, okay, you're not that weird. And... Uh, and so it was so interesting. And so we had our first baby bat, uh, dedication here. Um, I, took a, I took a cup of water and stuck it up behind the podium. <laughs> and I wrote on there, if the Spirit leads you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, any questions on anything that we've covered? Um, I do want to give you uh, just some examples of so I, I you know of some places where um, I would disagree with the 69 confession and, and I'm not saying you should I just want to kind of when I say I don't want to just throw that bomb out there and not explain it um, so obviously on on baptism this church as a whole would disagree with the 69 confession because it is strictly only membership is only for pe- people baptized by immersion that's it and so our bylaws go against that slightly. Um, you know the 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 you know how you interpret who the Antichrist is. The the sixty nine confession would put it would say clearly it's the Pope. I I say I, I think I would interpret it slightly differently. He might be might be I don't know. But I'm just saying it. I, I would interpret it slightly different. So we're I'm talking about little things. Um, the uh, you know all the confessions deal with what happens to babies when they die. You know back then a baby's there was a high mortality rate. That's a very important thing. And while I think probably the 1689 Confession has the best answer, I, I don't think there's enough scripture to absolutely say 100% this is, this is what's happening. Um, so anyway, I, I, uh, what else? Um, oh, it's Lord's Supper. So this is relevant for today. Um, so there was this big divide in the early church between Martin Luther and Zwingli. Luther w- believed in transubstantiation, so believed that the the actual the bread became the body the body of Christ and the the wine became the blood, and then this guy Zwingli came along and said no 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 it's just memorial that's all it is it's memorial Jesus can't be everywhere he's sitting on the right hand of God the Father, um, and it's it's all it is is remembering the gospel and so and and that's more on the 1689 front right there and we would be somewhere in the middle with actually Calvin and say all right it's it's not transubstantiation it's but it's something more than just memorial. There is a 
spiritual aspect. There's a spiritual blessing that we're not trying to explain. We're just saying it's more than just memorial. And so there'd be a place I, I when I when I was being vetted, I had to give them my exceptions. Again, in the Presbyterian world, these are these are very common things in the Presbyterian world. Same exceptions. And then there's some, they would have a higher Sabbatarian emphasis than I have, you know, uh, that I would, I would do things on a Sunday, like play baseball with my kids that probably the 1689 confession would not lend itself to that. So we're talking about little things here. And I'm not, I don't want to, I just kind of, and that's all of them. That's all the places I can think of that I really have any disagreement. But again, we're not saying the 1689 confession is the Bible. It is the best thing though that articulates what it is we think the Bible's saying. So I do commend it to you. I, I think the way it's written is just unbelievably majestic. I mean, how, how these people, their command of the English language was insane. And you have to give a lot of credit to the Westminster people because you'll see places that it's basically cut and pasted, and I'm fine with that. But, uh, but it's awesome. I, I think everybody should read that confession and, and if you have kids or grandkids, the catechism is a great way to teach that confession. All right, I feel like this was our most arduous, heavy lifting, deep thinking time together. Um, please, 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 if there's anything on that list that you want to talk about, yes. Um, can you explain a little bit about uh, the requirements as far as age, joining the church, and as far as if a person should be baptized before they take the Lord's Supper. Yes, we're going to cover that actually in okay. a future session. Well, you covered it. You dipped your toe. Okay. <laughs> well, we've got time. I can. Um, do you want to take that? I mean, yeah, we. Yeah, you have to be baptized in order to take the Lord's Supper. Now, obviously, you know, we've articulated that we're Baptists with a lowercase b and not an uppercase b in the sense of allowing for people with, you know, conscientious, you know, if you've been, if your conscience is constrained, that I've been baptized as an infant in a, you know, in a gospel preaching church, and you don't feel the necessity to be baptized as, you know, as an adult after, you know, an adult profession of faith, then, then that's, that's fine. You're fine to you know, partake in the, in the Lord's Supper here as, you know, and you're fine to, you know, be accepted into a worship in those things. But if you've never been baptized as a period, then we would want you to be baptized before you partake in the Lord's Supper. And as part of, you know, I mean, we can figure out the order of, you know, whether you're baptized before or after convert and those different kinds of things. But yeah, the, you know, baptism is the initiatory you know, one-time uh, response uh, ordinance that Christ has given us, and then um, obviously the Lord's Supper is that ongoing rhythm of that's constantly putting the gospel um, visually and through um, you know all uh, engaging all of these other senses as well, um, putting that before us. Does that answer your question? Well, yeah, that was one part. The other part is the age. Is there a if, like say someone baptized? When they were an infant, not the case in, in my uh, experience, but or so my, myself. But um, is there a certain age where they're they're restricted? Yeah. So I I would say, and this is so I have my oldest is eleven. None of my kids have been baptized yet. I'm pretty sure at least two of them are believers. Um, 
and so I I've seen so many uh, I've been in churches that just there's this you know if your kid's six and hadn't been baptized what are you doing wrong as a parent and uh, and so I I've, and my, I have one kid who's been asking to be baptized my oldest has been asking and I, and I said you know right now you're in a Christian home who goes to a Christian church and you actually go to a Christian school and I don't I don't see your your faith being tested much I want to I want to see this world push against your faith a little more to where that um, that baptism means something you know Calvin or was it yeah, I think it was Calvin talking about he's talking about converse. He said people should be baptized without undue delay or undue haste. And so I'm trying to weigh this: when am I delaying too much? When I when I have undue haste personally. So so I would if somebody brought a six year old to me in a Christian home, I would really say I, I'd really say I think I think you should wait. We're going to put a lot of emphasis on what the parents think. Um, and. Uh, for me, this is again. We're getting just to Jim Davis here. I think there's twelve, thirteen is this age where kids are becoming their own. But before you totally lose their brain to the mush of the teenage years, and so like so that that kind of in our house is is the range twelve to thirteen that we look for that that we could start seeing ourselves baptizing. So would you say any time after someone's baptized, they could partake? Yes. Supper? Yes. Okay. You would want everybody. There's like a Matthew six, you know, constraint of some some un undealt with, you know, thing. So as far as membership in the church for a teenager, what is that? Eighteen. Right so now. Our bylaws it says. I think in our bylaws it's eighteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's not like I mean like if if there is a. 16 year old who has been baptized and is in the, I mean like we're going to tr- functionally treat them you like treat members them, yeah. they wouldn't have to sign the bylaws but like we're yeah. going to be praying for them yeah. and they're going to have every blessing it just would be, most likely they wouldn't be voting when it came right. to yeah. right. the other part would be Jim for the exception 